Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly, Ben Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoop, Castro, Ed's a Lizza No Go, U2, Sigmund Rhee, Payola, and Kennedy, Chubby Checker, Psycho. Who's a psycho, Katie? You, me, or someone else? Hello again, and welcome to episode 80 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm wondering how we got to where we are today, because Billy thinks it might have something to do with Psycho. Eat, eat, do, do, do. That <laughs> That's a very is... bad impression of a school. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> yeah, you got to get up there. So, Psycho, the uh, Alfred Hitchcock film, I never actually watched it until what? until I was preparing for this this program. Wow. Brief thoughts, Katie? Dissonant, much like the Bernard Herrmann yes. score. But the, the only thing going in that I knew about Psycho, Tom, was I have visited the Psycho house. <gasps> the Psycho house itself, which now lives... On the Universal City lot in Los Angeles. It. So it's an amusement park. You can go on roller coasters. You can see various Universal characters. And then they have some flotsam and jetsam from their various films, including the big scary house where Norman Bates lives with his quote-unquote mother. <laughs> It must be slightly strange vibe there, Katie, if people are enjoying um, the things you get at Universal and Fairground yeah. Rides, and then they go to a house where, plot spoiler, there's a horrible, horrendous murder. <laughs> there's a few uh, taxidermied relatives hanging around uh, <laughs> amongst the birds of prey that are stuffed and hanging on the wall. Yeah, it's a weird kind of friction because, of course, Los Angeles, with its relentless sunshine that boils your brain inside <laughs> your skull, actually, maybe it is a fitting location. Hmm. Well, Katie, I'm delighted to say that our guest today is one of our all-time favourites. It's Dr. Cara Robway, the Deputy Head of the Ackles Centre for American Studies. Welcome, Cara. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be here. I love Psycho, so I'm really excited to get to talk Shall stabbing we do? horror with you. <laughs> yes. Shall we do? I mean, there may be people listening to this who haven't seen it. So shall we do a brief plot synopsis? So the, the Alfred Hitchcock film is, is based on a novel by a man called Robert Block, which was written in 1959, which is a gothic horror. And it's about a man called Norman Bates, who is a middle-aged, pudgy, unattractive sort of weirdo who runs a motel, the Bates Motel. And a young woman called Mary, who's changed to Marion in the film, she uh, lives in Phoenix and she steals $40,000 from her boss. He's a real estate developer because she wants to give it to her uh, her boyfriend, uh, Sam, to help him pay down his dead father's debts, which will enable him to get married. So she steals the money and she drives. She's trying to drive up to meet Sam and give him the money. And she the, the rain forces off the road into this abandoned motel where she meets Norman. And she she talks to him and he's this sort of strange character, this sort of mummy's boy. In the novel particularly, it's, it's, the reason I'm telling you a bit more about the book is I think it's really interesting, the, the changes that Alfred Hitchcock makes, kind of why it's so successful. 
So she she has a, she has dinner with Norman and kind of talks a bit around, you know, the fact that we're all sort of stuck in our personal traps. You you sort of see her kind of change her mind, think, okay, I'm gonna give the money back. This is a bad a bad move. And she goes uh, back into her motel room. You then realise that Norman is going to spy on her. So he he moves a picture and you... So it gets a he's bit got creepy. A, he's, got he's got a little, little peephole. Yeah. Going from the office into, into the motel room. And then Marion, Mary in the novel, she decided she's going to change her way. She's going to go back, give the money back. She gets in the shower and then uh, this this shocking moment she's suddenly murdered curtain pulls back apparently this woman appears and stabs her and actually in the novel she's beheaded which they don't do in the film the plot switches really to Norman as the focus and he thinks that his mother might have committed this murder and so you then you follow him trying to dispose of the body and then uh, the plot then also moves to Mary's sister Lila who turns up to see the boyfriend and says you know, is, is, is Mary here what's happened I've not seen her for a week and you then get a detective Arbogast from the insurance company employed by her boss trying to get the money back and so you then get the sort of detective element with these three and they eventually locate the motel and they realise that through looking at the register although she signed under a false name they recognise the handwriting she was there first of all Arbogast is then uh, murdered by we assume mother and then uh, Lila and Sam go, uh, Lila in a very excellent sequence is kind of creeping around the house and then eventually finds uh, the the remains of mother because we realise she's actually been dead for 10 years. And then it, the, the film concludes with Bates being arrested and is order restored. Not quite sure. So that's the story. And the film plot is is almost entirely true to that. The, the character names I said, Mary Crane had to be changed to Marion because there was a real Mary Crane in Phoenix and it was deemed that it maybe wasn't a great idea to have a real person, uh, you know, named in your film. So Marion. But so the interesting changes that Hitchcock makes is he actually makes Marion's story much bigger part of it. It's about two chapters in the book. But the, the way he, he plots the film, you focus on her right from the beginning, whereas yeah. the book actually starts with Norman. You start with him reading in the house um, with a mother sort of berating him. So, yeah, the book, you have a lot more of Mother's voice, which is quite interesting. Whereas, the, yeah, the film, it's really about Marion. And also the casting of Anthony Perkins is really interesting because he basically makes Norman Bates much more sympathetic. Yes. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a kind of, you know, he's a good looking, slightly kind of awkward, but also quite sort of charming Well, you know, guy. he struck me, Cara, as kind of a, um, like, David Byrne in the early Talking Heads, kind <laughs> of like a nerdy indie geek, uh, quite cute, vulnerable, sweet little smile. No, for sure. And I think that really changes kind of how you feel about the film and how you feel about him, rather than being this sort of of this rather physically repulsive fat middle-aged man who is who is in the book who um, who drinks and his sort of blackouts from the alcohol is at the moment when mother kind of takes over. Well, it keeps us on the edge. And that's the other thing is that because of Janet Lee's performance, you see her kind of melting and being disarmed by him. And she she takes on sort of a maternal, yes. instead of being kind of a, you know, she's a very sensual, beautiful young woman. And then you see her sort of take pity on him and um, sort of put him at ease. And then that makes sense for why she she then kind of centers herself and realizes, you know what, I should not be on the lamb stealing this money. I'm going to change my evil ways and, and come clean. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that was a really, a really successful decision for sure. It pretty much, Cara, when you watch it, it feels like it's trying to mess with your head from the very start. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Everything from that initial relationship, how are we meant to feel about Janet Lee? Is she a thief? Do we sympathize with her affair? I mean, the fact that we see, I guess, at that time, an unmarried couple having saucy times. Well, yeah, and also real sexual chemistry, which kind of alarmed me because normally you don't have that. It's usually much more cardboardy. But but she with her lover in the sleazy hotel room at the top of the movie, yeah. you're like, oh, I believe that they're totally hot for each other. And, you know, yeah, no, no it, wonder it, they have to, like, get it on at lunchtime for a quickie. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, again, is actually a Hitchcock development because the couple the couple exists in in the book but he really kind of ramps it up i think he knew what his audience wanted he knew that kind of you know sexual titillation and hysteria were basically the ways that you were really going to entertain the sort of the slightly younger audience that he was aiming for he's a, mm. you know he's a real you know there's a reason his career is so long he's a real master of sort of film fads and fashions and he really he knew that this was kind of where he needed to go and i think you know even as you say watching it many many decades later it's that she's really beautiful in the sort of sexy underwear, the good-looking guy. And you see, there is real chemistry. And so that does work really well. And I think you're right that right from that beginning, you then, it contrasts really nicely with this sort of 
she's quite prim and sort of buttoned up in all her costuming, mm. but you know that kind of underneath she's smoking. She's smoking. And so she, you know, and she goes back to her job and there's a sense both she and her sister are, are women who work. You know, the sister works in a record shop. She's a buyer. That's a little plot point. That's why she's out of town. But, you know, I think it's really, it's really, really of its moment, which is also one of the reasons I think it probably hit a note because, you know, they're both sort of, professional women they're making their main way in the world but still into obviously very junior roles she's a secretary in the the, the real estate business but they're still trapped by some of the, these sexual mores you know the fact that her lover can't remarry because he has all this debt and doesn't want to sort of you know doesn't feel he can start a life with her at this moment so they're having this sort of illicit relationship when did this film come out 1960 yeah so it's on this cusp of the the pre-war days and the post-war days and you even see that I think in the performances because you have the older men like the detectives the mm. the the private eye you know the sheriff um, the boss and even to an extent Janet Lee their styles of acting are, are a little more like stagey yeah. and theatrical and then you have the young buck who's mm. Anthony Perkins and he comes from the actor's studio, like Marlon Brando did and James Dean did. And he has a much more naturalistic style, which I guess in the in that friction between the old and the new almost reads as a little bit naturally neurotic because he's a little more free and easy and it's perfect for, for the role. So it's almost like we're witnessing just even in the film that kind of tension between the old and the new. Yeah, I think that's I think I think you're really right there. And he does one of the reasons that it was such a kind of defining role for, for Perkins, though, as well, was that he was obviously an incredibly well-respected actor and had, had his successful film career, particularly stage career. He was really, you oh, know, yeah. he was from New York. He, you know, he had, you know, he'd worked with all of the big directorial names of that era. Uh, and so he was obviously a very, a very able actor. But also, you know, when you, when you read into his biography... I think his character reflected a lot of the sort of of Norman Bates. I mean, I don't think the sort of murderous you know, elements, obviously, but, you know, in terms of being somebody who obviously was slightly nervous, was very charming, but was always slightly sort of nervous, mm. um, very kind of eager to please, but also somebody described him as, you know, he always seemed to have like four thoughts going on in his head at once. You know, he was obviously very clever, very creative, um, but also very sort of anxious and also, you know, obviously struggled a lot with his sexuality in, yeah. a, in a very closeted, and homophobic era, um, mm. which in itself is quite interesting. I think all of those sort of strands really come together in that performance. There's so much about the film, Car, that is familiar that you sometimes have to remind yourself of certain questions about it. So the fact it's in black and white, it's 1960, people have been making pictures in Technicolor for a long time. But because of the way that Psycho has worked its way into popular culture... You don't think about it when you're watching. You don't oh, think, yeah. hang on, this is 1960. Why is it in black and white? Yeah, and that, that's a very good point. And that's that's part of the sort of interesting kind of production history. So uh, Hitchcock was one of the preeminent directors of the kind of early to mid 20th century. He's, he's British. Uh, he'd had a lot of success in the UK. He, he's even working in the silent era. So, you know, he's has this long, long career, very well known particularly in the 50s, for making these very glamorous technicolour thrillers. So, you know, starring people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. North by Northwest. North by Northwest. Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Vertigo. so Vertigo, yeah. which is the film before Psycho. So he's that's what he's really best best known for. The big set pieces, you know, you think of the, the crop duster yeah. in North by Northwest or the, you know, clambering over the, um, you know, the faces of Mount Rushmore. Right. A epic. big epic vision. Yeah. He made Vertigo, which, for those who don't know it, is Kim Novak sort of looking cold and beautiful in San Francisco, being chased <laughs> Another around cold, by Jimmy beautiful, Stewart. Another cold, beautiful, icy blonde, yeah. uh, which is, is very much the Hitchcock motif. But it actually, although it's in subsequent years become very well regarded sort of by critics, and it's always one of the kind of greatest films, you know, on those sort of greatest films list, it, did, it didn't do well at the time. And so that was a disappointment. And then he tr- he tried to get another project off the ground with Audrey Hepburn, which had fallen apart, but he'd already actually invested quite a bit of time and money in it. So he he was he basically needed a film that was going to make money and he was as i said he was very canny and he had he'd thought about he he really liked he was on the lookout for something a bit different he thought you know something that i can do sort of quickly and cheaply but will be a success and so he he read psycho the novel based on having read a good review and he said i think the thing that appealed to me and made me decide to do the picture was the suddenness of the murder in the shower coming as it were out of the blue that was about all and so what i really like is in the in the book it's literally like a a, a short paragraph but he could really see it yeah i mean i can i can read it to you if you're interested mm. it's um so marion's uh mary in the book sorry has got into the shower 
Um, the, the roar of the shower was deafening. The room was beginning to steam up. That's why she didn't hear the door open or note the sound of footsteps. And at first, when the shower curtains parted, the steam obscured the face. Then she did see it there, just a face peering through the curtains, hanging in midair like a mask. A headscarf concealed the hair and the glassy eyes stared inhumanly. But it wasn't a mask. It couldn't be. The skin had been powdered, dead white, and two hectic spots of rouge centred on the cheekbones. It wasn't a mask. It was the face of a crazy old woman. Mary started to scream, and then the curtains parted further and a hand appeared holding a butcher knife. It was the knife that, a moment later, cut off her scream. And her head. End of chapter. <laughs> wow, that Good is writing. punchy. So the actually, I, I really very would recommend visual. it if you've if you've not read it. The book is actually very enjoyable. I really, oh. um, I unlike you, Katie, had seen the film many many years yeah. ago, but I hadn't read the book before yes. coming to, to to talk today. And I, I did actually, I really enjoyed it. So I would that would be my my takeaway for the audience is if you want a little bit more psycho and you've not read the book, I, I recommend it. Yeah, but Hitchcock can really see it. I think that's the point that I think is so interesting. That very short scene, he obviously immediately imagines how kind of visual and power. Powerful, you know, that can be. And so one of the, the things I think is important about Hitchcock, so he's making these big, beautiful films in the 50s, but he's also, I say, canning operator. He knows that things are changing. So the 50s is, as, as your listeners know, because you've talked about it, was the era of TV. Um, you know, and across the decade of the 1950s, you go from having 4 million televisions to 48 million televisions. People are watching TV. They're not going to the cinema in the same way. They're now watching television. And so from 1955 onwards, he started doing a, a series called Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was short kind of mystery thriller pieces on the TV. And, and it was all sold on his persona. And this was really, really successful. And although actually it was very associated with him and he would do these little intros and outros, which were very kind of dark and comic. It's like a sort of slightly humorous English undertaker. This sort of, yeah. Yeah, sort of dark humor. I do remember seeing them. They were on repeats forever on American television. So it's kind of blubbery, wet lips uh, and this big pot <laughs> big belly. Big guy shape. And, yeah. and kind of like making a, a virtue of the fact that he's very physically re- repulsive. But he has that like ridiculous good evening <laughs> way of speaking. And then like, yeah, a little so, weird, a bit of weird, dark whimsy. Yeah. So he was, so he also knew though that there was an audience there for his TV show, which he could get to the cinema. Smart. And so that's sort of part of what he's thinking about. And so he decides because he takes this the, the, the psycho idea to, to Paramount, which was the studio that he had he made all these big glossy thrillers with and he had an ongoing deal with, and they were really unsure. They were like, oh, so hang on, you know, this 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 cheap horror, gothic horror about a man who dresses as his mother and, you know, murders people. This doesn't really have like prestige film written all over it. <laughs> um, but Hitchcock was determined and so with his agent he he agreed a deal that he would actually shoot it at Universal so he'd have a degree of freedom he'd go to a different studio he waived his fee he invested his own money in the production ah. he said I think he spent about $800,000 uh, and made squillions I think by the yeah. end of the international release it was about $15 million so it, it paid off but one in, the, in thinking about how to make it kind of quick and cheaply he thought well why don't I use my TV crew because they know how to shoot fast um, on the TV show they could do about nine oh. minutes of footage a day which is, is quick for, uh, you know, much quicker than film so he thought he did that and also they were used to shooting in black and white black and white was cheaper oh. the, the camera equipment is cheaper the processing is cheaper uh, but also he I think had thought about the aesthetics of it and yes. it's really interesting when we think about it now because obviously this just doesn't hold but at that point you know, he said the idea of that red blood going down the drain would have been repulsive oh. you know um, I was wondering about the blood because you do see it in black and white and I thought hmm are we missing an opportunity here yeah well he, he obviously he obviously thought not he thought that that would sort of heighten it to a to a kind of a level that he didn't want to take it with with that project and it's quite interesting when you then think about the kind of splatter sort of fests that that you know where, yeah. where sort of horror film went to um, I think it's quite interesting that he actually really wanted a sort of an element of, of kind of control. But and another interesting sort of thing I thought about the the, the the production was apparently he chose to use uh, 50 millimeter lenses, which apparently gives you a field of vision that's not unlike the human eye. Oh. So it actually oh. means that as the viewer, you're getting you quite have a peripheral. A sort of, yeah, but but it's not it's not super wide. You think of like you know the, okay. those big sort of Technicolor panorama movies. Yeah, oh, this is I quite see. and it's much more like television. It's much more you know. Oh, I see. So of, it's more sen- it's more located. And yeah, more, and and, more focused in. You know, and 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 you. You think about the, those very claustrophobic sets and it, all that all yes. sort of works very nicely, I think, together to kind of help create the atmosphere and to bring you in. Because, Cara, I do want to talk to you about the aesthetic of it because he's so he's really pulling out all the stops um, because now I understand that he's he's working within a budget and he's just trying to be quick and dirty with the whole thing. But 
his directing style is, you know, the pacing is there. The way the the lighting on the set is is so crazy, kind of like the like old timey footlight. So you have these faces lit up all crazy of the swinging light bulb sort of animating these dead things or taxidermied birds or desiccated mom sitting in a rocking chair, like giving movement. And then the thing that really underscores and literally scores the the horror and the tension is Bernard Herrmann's music, the those pizzicato string stabs that happen and the the swelling foreboding theme that keeps coming in. And that that music is a meme now that Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think immediately it became a meme before memes were even understood as a device. I mean, people understood that that was a shorthand for horror. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I think, you know, when you think about moving into the shower scene, obviously that the music is, is so central. But I think also, you know, you're quite right about the, the production. And one of the things that I think is really was another thing that jumped out when I read the book is that the taxidermy theme is kind of it only actually comes in right at the end as Lila, the sister, is walking around the house. She finds she walks down into the basement and she finds basically taxidermy like kit. A, oh, like, like she a finds workshop. like she finds, you know, like yeah. syringes and stuff. And she's seen a stuffed squirrel in the kitchen just as she's walked down. So that's right at the end. That's literally before the revelation of the of the, the mm. body. Whereas I think Hitchcock understands, you know, the, the sort of the the visual power yeah. of all those stuffed animals, but also the fact that they contribute to what he's totally. trying to communicate, you know, because, you know, Bates is stuck there in in stasis in yes. this this motel that he can't leave, you know, and then you realize that also this is also how he's tried to preserve his mother. But I think, you know, the the, the way that they use that scene where he and, and Marion are talking in the in the little lounge in space the in, the, in the parlor in the yeah. motel. You know, it's just incredible. The framing, the use of the, you know, of the birds. And you know, also it's really he fantastic. gets to, to like drop in little comments like, my, my hobby, hobby is, is stuffing, stuffing things. things. <laughs> just like, that's not creepy. And then you have a scene later on in the shop where Sam works. It's a hardware store, yeah. And there's a woman who's buying some like pest control. And she's saying, well, I want them to die, but I don't want them to be in pain. So there's all this kind of reference to death mm. and, you know, killing things but preserving things. Yeah, and also one thing I think is very, very interesting is that Hitchcock actually said that he wanted it to be quite funny, which I think it possibly, it, it doesn't necessarily come over that way. You realise that's not how people took it, but he obviously felt that there was quite a lot of humour. And I think that that example of the woman standing there like buying like the rat poison or whatever, that's a really good kind of bit of black humour that's sort of tucked in, um, which, yeah, if you're sort of taken in with some of the other things you're not really focusing on, but I think when you step back, it's you find them there. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in we didn't start the fire. So that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, 
cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Let's go big on the shower scene then because it is one of the most infamous scenes in cinema. There were so many details reading about this Cara that I found fascinating. So there's quite a lot of dispute, isn't there, about how many shots there are in this scene, how many cuts. And for people who are obsessed with cinema, these things matter. I like the detail that for the blood, we've talked about how he felt that red blood in colour would be too much, that he uses Hershey's chocolate syrup for the blood because it looks really good in black and white. Ah. And the bit where we hear distinctively the knife going into flesh is a knife going into a watermelon. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's and that even when you know that it's still gross. Um <laughs> so I think the the shower scene is is amazing and as we were saying, you know, he wanted to work very quickly but you know if they were doing 9 minutes a day for the the shower scene it took them 7 days to shoot what actually amounts to 45 seconds mm. of screen time and by all accounts there were about 70 camera setups that they tried and there was lots that didn't make it and I I read about Janet Lee describing that Hitchcock wanted her you know there's a scene where you you pull away from her eye that's sort of at the end he wanted her under the faucet when that happened he wanted the you know the water kind of rain down but she couldn't do it because she couldn't keep her eyes open with all of the you know all of the water so obviously they you know they really worked worked hard they tried a lot of different things but he you know he noted that that it really is the editing. It's the, it's the editing and the music that yeah. really, really make that scene work. You know, and he himself said that, you know, we really tightened it up. We got the tempo going in the edit. And I think that's one of the things that so makes it so effective as a film is that, you know, up to that point, you know, you mentioned, Katie, about, you know, sort of borrowing almost from, you know, kind of traditional filmmaking methods. We've got quite slow. We've got, you know, scenes of discussion, you know, where they sit down, they have conversation or you've got, you know, her in the car. These are all quite well sort of worn tropes. You know, you kind of you, you, you understand them as a film goer. You know what's going on. But then to suddenly move to this totally frenetic cutting pace that was unlike anything that you would have experienced. I mean, we're very used to it having, you know, yes. as, yeah, as we kind of moved into the sort of almost like, you know, the post music video, you know, which obviously where we think of, you know, as a, as a, as a medium built around sort of fast cutting and fast editing, you know, but, but in, in 1960, this was so arresting as a viewer to see it like that. Um, but also it is the music and Hitchcock originally thought that he didn't need any soundtrack, That's insane, which isn't is it? one of the most interesting things when you then think if you watch that with just the sound of the melon, yeah, <laughs> the water, neither, neither, yeah. you know, which would that would be what, you know, that's the, the rest of the, the non-music soundtrack, you know, and the screams. But then, you know, Bernard Herrmann, the composer, who he who was a longtime collaborator of Hitchcock's, they'd they'd worked on a lot of things together. He he said, look, I've had this, this great idea for this like strings only orchestration. And I think that we should lay this this very staccato uh, music over the chassis and and Hitchcock he said when he listened to it that he got it straight away that as soon as he had he called them the the screaming violins he said yeah. as soon as he got that he knew that that that, that was what they needed and I think that that's yeah it's 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 remarkable and I had a nice quote here from um, Peter Bogdanovich the filmmaker uh, best known for working in the seventies and eighties Psycho is the moment in movies when for the first time movies weren't safe. I remember coming out of the screening and feeling I'd been raped or something or mugged. It was absolutely terrifying. No one recovered from that shower scene. You couldn't hear the soundtrack because the audience was screaming through the entire 45 <gasps> seconds. I never heard those violins. Wow. Well, the thing about that shower scene that is so disturbing is how long we are with 
dead Marion. So, you know, it's quite titillating to see this beautiful naked woman. Like, that's kind of part of the excitement of it is like, oh, no, oh, no, she's going to be killed. But, oh, can we catch a glimpse of her beautiful body? But then... She's dead, and we're just with her for a long time with the the pounding of that shower, the steam, and then when Norman Bates comes in to dispose of the body, and it's so kind of—it's like she's a slab of meat be, being wrapped in shrink wrap because that weird— clear shower curtain. You know, it's not like a happy, cheerful shower curtain that has daisies on it. It's just (laughs) like weird clinical Mm. um, hospital or something. Or like she is a carcass that's being wrapped to be taken to the butchers and smeared with blood. And then he gets the mop out. And and just, just seeing like her limp foot or a shot of her elegant tapered fingered hand, but everything is just dead and absent. And the whole thing is so supremely creepy. It is. And also it, that's, it's about pacing as well, because having gone from that really frenetic violence of the murder, as you say, you then it, it gets very still and you have that, you know, that shot pulling out from of her face. And it's and suddenly you've got it's gone so slow again yeah. that, you know, but, but that really helps you with the tension because you don't know why she's been murdered you don't know who's done it and you're just so shocked that the film star the person who you thought you were going yes, to see I, mean, I was that's, shocked that's the that's the other you know and you realize that again I was this invested is, in her story yeah. and and there's a wonderful bit of sort of Hitchcock you know this idea of the MacGuffin this is his phrase for the kind of the plot device that you know you think is the most important reason but actually something else is happening so that actually the money is the MacGuffin it doesn't you know it ultimately matters not at all apart mm-hmm. from the fact he brings Arbogast into the story I suppose after the murder you then the way that he frames the shot you have I think you're sort of by the headboard of the bed and Bates walks into the motel room. But what he's obviously done, they've actually removed the wall because the camera is literally by the bed. As Bates walks past, you the camera pans behind the bedside table, which has the big the, the newspaper with the wadge of money in it. So that's right at the forefront of the frame. Because you're still in this sort of, you know, is it all going to be about stealing the money? You know, but actually you realise that you know, he kind of pans around it and then you move in with Norman to the bathroom mm-hmm. and to the body and you actually realise that there's something else kind of going on and that, you know, and then the, the money just ends up in the car and ends up getting disposed of with the body. It, it doesn't matter. And so as you sort of swap the plot from Marion and the money mm. to Bates and mother, you realise that actually it's it's much more sort of psychologically disturbing and that's one of the reasons it's so effective and that's what he wanted to do. You go from what you think is a sort of crime caper into actually something that's much darker, you know, about the... The horror that lurks, you know, within and, you know, and within the the incredibly normal and quotidian motel space, you know, somewhere that's just on the road, you know, and that it's nothing that she did. It's, in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's stranger danger. You know, it's sort of it's it's really wonderful kind of, I think, how he sort of sets up one film and then completely undercuts it and gives you another. So it terrifies audiences. There's a story that uh, Clive James used to tell the critic um, about going to watch it with a new girlfriend and being so scared. I think he was wearing like um, a roll neck jumper that he pulled his roll neck jumper up over his head. (laughs) And when his date for the evening turned to her left in horror, (laughs) she was greeted by the sight of a headless man. Um, But it also terrifies the woman at the centre of it. So apparently after this scene, Katie, Janet Lee hates showers. Oh, no. Whenever she has a shower after this, she'll either lock the doors and the windows of the room she was in or she will leave the bathroom door open and the shower door open because she has in her mind that image forevermore of someone sneaking up on her. Well, that is a testament to Hitch's talent. Uh, traumatized even the actress who knew it was completely make-believe. Well, he and he, he enjoyed traumatizing her. Um, he oh. would he would they were working through various prototypes for the dummy of mother, and he would leave it in uh, in <laughs> Janet Lee's uh, dressing room, and he and uh, by all accounts to gauge the level of the scream when she would go in. And She's you know, a good the, the bigger the scream, the better they knew they were wow. doing with the prototype. Oh, poor her. No um, wonder she, she would have been. And so flinchy and raw after that situation. I want to get into one of the main innovations with Psycho. I mean, of course, the masterful building of tension, the dance of the soundtrack versus the pacing, the lighting, the staging. But really, we're talking about this psychological horror. And as you say, the horror within, especially in this very mundane environment. 
How was that received at the time? Because it's all about Norman Bates effectively splitting his personality and transferring all of his shame about sexual desires into the hectoring persona of his mother, his dead mother. So he is simultaneously himself and his mother chastising him. How was that all understood at the time? Was this all like fresh new ways to think about the human mind? Yeah, I think there's definitely some of that. I mean, one of the things that I find most odd, though, when you watch the film is actually how it doesn't resolve very satisfactorily. You have this sort of the kind of concluding moment is set. I think we're meant to be in this sort of in the police station. Sam and Lila are there and the the police officer and and the sort of the, the psychiatrist comes in. This sort of, which is a very fifties figure of the expert, you know, yes. the expert who's going to kind of make everything okay. Oh, he's like mansplaining and, times a hundred. But, but he's also, I, I'm, I can't remember the name of the actor who does it, but he, he couldn't be more like nineteen fifties oh, if he yeah. tried. I mean, he, he looks like you've seen him in like every other movie <laughs> from the era, playing either a policeman or a kind of, you know, the sort of hard talking like headmaster of a like difficult boys' school, or <laughs> you know, or the psychiatrist, or you know, some sort of male authority figure. Who's, yeah. you know, anyway. It's quite funny when you sort of think about it like that. But he comes in and he gives this big spiel about, you know, oh, it turns out that, you know, that Norman's taken on the, the guise of his mother and now your mother's taken over and now we can only talk to mother. And suddenly you realise, you're like, well, if you can only talk to mother, how do you know any of this is true? Exactly. Mm. You know, and so you realise that actually have they all been played for fools? And, you know, you have, it's meant to be very sort of comforting and it's quite a sort of, you know, it's meant to be also wrapped up neatly, but then you get the, the famous sort of final shots where you've got Anthony Perkins sitting in very sort of bare rooms, having gone from all these very sort of uh, Victorian Gothic set, you know, settings. You're now meant to think he's now being mother, but they sensibly don't decide to have him speak because obviously that would be problematic. So you're just looking at him. And then he looks straight into the camera and there's this sort of wry smile. And you think, oh my God, is he, is he working them all? Is that actually any of this true? Yes. And then in the very, very final shot, they slightly superimpose a skull over... Uh, over his face and his over smile. Over his face and his smile. Which is really... It's really creepy. And creepy. So, and, and apparently, um, when they released the film, Hitchcock was very... I mean, you know, he's a smart guy and he really understood a lot of the kind of how you shaped the audience experience of this. And apparently, because you know, in film in this period, you have no credits. So as soon as it finishes and it says the end, the lights come up. But apparently, he instructed cinema managers to keep the lights down so that you know mm. so you can't escape so you know you have this sort of moment and the audience who are all you know frankly completely terrified and overworked you know you, yeah. you then you still can't get out you're still in this and it's very much a sort of communal experience i think that's one of the things that you're talking about you know how do people understand it and i think that's one thing that's really magic and i think that's also what he knew was that if you could create a tension and atmosphere in the cinema where people are experiencing it together and that's obviously one of the pleasures of sort of horror you know in a in that sort of communal environment and so there were all these sort of marketing strategies where they encouraged they wouldn't let you in after the film had started that yeah. was a big and that was made a big play of mm. and people were encouraged to come and get their tickets early which was quite unusual so americans were very used to just sort of turning up and buying a ticket but you know you had to go and queue so it builds this sort of feeling of camaraderie mm. with the other people who an are going to go and an go- event yeah. exactly and so I think they were clever in giving that experience. And I think, you know, like you know, the examples that we've given of people sort of talking about, you know, just how kind of communally terrifying experience this was, you know, everybody screaming, you know, you, you, you barely hear the music. Talking about this interminable expository chunk just <laughs> tacked on at the end where that bad actor is very woodenly and literally laying out why Psycho did it. I feel so disappointed that that's laid on us. It it seems like after all of the cool, edgy aspects of the film, you do have this throwback moment. And I'm wondering, did Hitchcock think that audiences were really that naive that they needed this stuff mansplained because you have the shrink going well it's like psychology 101 it's like you know (laughs) Mm. he couldn't cope with his darker feelings therefore he needed to (laughs) assume another persona and I feel like yeah I know we've just spent over an hour having this (laughs) spelled out and then in fact the next thing you see as you say Mm. is, is Anthony Perkins in his holding cell Having the the argument, his hectoring mother, mm. you know, lambasting him in his head. And if you just cut to that, you as the audience would understand, oh, 
that's what's going on. He mm. split his personalities, and that this is what's going on. And you could have uh, shown, not told. In other words, yeah. But I wonder if I wonder if some of that is us reading backwards. I wonder if some of that's yeah. you know us bringing you know a very sort of comfortable understanding of sort of the split personality. I mean, these are all sort of tropes, or you know, not just of horror, but of you know broader cultural discussions about you know mental health or mental illness. Right. And I I think if you maybe watched it. And this is the case with a lot of, you know, lots of things that you've actually talked about on the podcast, you know, lots of things which seem to be sort of pushing, pushing the envelope. You know, often you don't get that full jump in one go, do you? You know, it's not, you know, you don't suddenly go from, you know, A to Z with nothing in between. And I wonder if, you know, it still does have a lot of the sort of shape of a 1950s film. But you then have this kind of these incredible moments which feel like they're really kind of pushing the art form forward. Um, you know, things like the techniques, even the plotting and the themes, as we've said. Yeah. There is a need to kind of help cement the story and kind of give the audience some sense of conclusion. But what I think is quite fun is I think it it's sort of you feel superficially like it's doing that but at the same time it actually really does because then the last shot of Anthony Perkins looking into the camera sort of undermines yes that I as think well. so and also I think you know so that's really also where this idea of you know psychological horror comes from doesn't mm. it is this idea that actually you know what's happening beneath the surface the you know the idea that somebody can appear perfectly normal quote unquote but actually yeah. you know underneath you know he's a murderous, you know, crazed. Also, Cara, I love that it's called Psycho. I mean, like, talk about direct and punchy. Um, and enjoyably playground in its name calling. I guess sensitivity around mental illness wasn't a thing in 1960. No, I think I think not. And I, I, I also psycho! think it's psycho. It's also quite... <laughs> That was one of the things that, that actually um, Paramount was uncomfortable about was, oh. you know, they, they thought, you know, who is ever going to agree to appear in a film called Psycho? You know, this is just, <laughs> you, know, you know, to what, you know, mental illness is stigmatized. You know, why would you? Um, and but I think that, you know, it's it's also one of those reasons I'm, I'm sure that its title has helped its longevity because it does remove it from its moment as well, doesn't it? You know, it, it's it's. It's trying to, in some sense, be a kind of universal story. Well, that's what the title sort of leads you to, to believe. Um, actually, this is quite a funny side note. So it actually comes over this title that appears at the beginning saying like December the 17th or whatever. They had to add that on afterwards because they realised that some of the second unit photography that they'd done for her driving out of Phoenix, you could see Christmas decorations. <laughs> oh. And rather than refilm it, cheapy, they were like, it's fine, we'll just make it Christmas. <laughs> Oh. There were no advanced screenings in the UK, which generally when that happens with films gets the go to critics. Critics get quite unhappy about it. And the reviews initially were curiously mixed, weren't they? But even as those reviews are coming out, people are flooding to the cinema in their millions because it's breaking box office records in the UK, in France, across Europe, Australasia, South America. Why would those reviews have been mixed? I think people just didn't know what to do with it because it was atypical within Hitchcock, certainly within the type of work that he was producing during the 1950s. It was, as we've said, you know, in lots of ways where it feels quite kind of boundary pushing, but in the in the package of a kind of cheapy horror film. You know, there's the, some the, the films that had kind of inspired Hitchcock were things like, you know, The Fly, The Blob, The Curse of the Undead. That's where he'd realised that there was this audience. I think critics didn't know what to do with that as a Hitchcock product or starring, you know, Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, who were award nominations and kind of glorious careers. You know, what did you then do with the fact that this was basically a kind of a slasher film? It's interesting. I think he didn't really know how to follow it up. I mean, that's mm. one thing that's quite noticeable. He made The Birds as his next film. And that's kind of it. I mean, he does work again, but none of them are sort of considered great works it almost kind of puts the brakes on his career in some way. Mm, that's so weird, isn't it? Because having watched The Birds a little while ago, I don't think when you watch that with modern eyes, it's scary at all. It's quite underwhelming. Yeah. Whereas Psycho is still genuinely terrifying. Yeah, it does seem modern as well. Yeah. Its themes seem really relatable. That whole kind of flickering between genders and, you know, uh, trying to deal and interrogate your own sexuality. I mean, all those things are contemporary themes. For sure. So we've talked about the effect it has on Hitchcock and on Janet Leigh, and we know what it does for Bernard Herrmann, the composer of the score. Let's talk a little bit more about Anthony Perkins, because, oh, yeah. Katie, you're right, he is so good in this film that you feel that sense of sympathy for a character you otherwise wouldn't feel sympathetic for. And as I read more about him, Cara, I felt a great sympathy for Anthony Perkins, the man, because... He, it seems, is gay in a time where you cannot be outwardly gay. He's clearly an extravagantly talented actor. He plays or he tries out for the James Dean role in Rebel Without a Cause. Oh. 
But then after Psycho, it's such a huge film and such a defining role, he can't leave it behind. Yeah. I know he is a he is a fascinating character. So he he was under contract to Paramount. There's quite a lot of true with anyone with a sort of reasonably long career, but there's there is quite a lot of kind of opportunities missed. And some of it's actually basically because Paramount was deeply uncomfortable about his sexuality. They you know, they knew that he was gay and they and thus did not want him doing any work which might add to the perception of him as a potentially gay man. They, they were constantly trying to sort of, you know, heterosexualize him hmm. um, and, you know, and, and increase his masculinity. So a couple of nice examples is he he lost out on Some Like It Hot, on the, the part that Tony Curtis eventually oh. got. Because the idea that, you know, you can't go putting this, like, uh. questioning sexuality man in a dress for half the movie. That's, you know, uh. that's clearly going to be, you know, a disaster for him and his career. People spoke about that. He had some stand-up rows with the head of Paramount who was insisting that he drop his relationship with his with his boyfriend, um, who was also a, a performer, which was apparently reasonably public. I mean, it was known in the sort of LA community um, and sort of New York community. So, yeah, I mean, that that's all kind of very, very sad. But by all accounts, he was, you know, he was he was a nice guy. Um, you know, he was well liked. It seems that the sort of tensions that he experienced sort of in various different film projects were often actually to do with homophobia, with other people um, objecting to him as a as a gay man. But he apparently had a lot of fun. He loved Scrabble. I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> apparently, he was very competitive. Um, and, and obviously, he enjoyed puzzles. And he actually, a longtime friend, was Stephen Sondheim, the the, the composer. Mm. So he's he, he's really interesting. But you're quite right that you know he has this incredible success in psycho but i think also linked with the fact that he he broke up with with tab hunter with his partner just before doing psycho tab basically hunter yes. who was the total pinup matinee idol who later much later john waters cast as a lead in polyester yes basically he then bought himself out of his paramount contract and you know some of the suggestion is that some of that was personal was the fact that you know this this breakup with his partner had basically been precipitated by paramount and then he had this kind of crazy outbreak success with Psycho, basically bought himself out of his contract and went to Europe. And so he spent much of the 60s actually in Europe making, and this is a really uh, rich time in European film. Yeah, this new is wave films. New wave films. So he appears in things with, you know, all these sort of terribly glamorous European actors. Brigitte Bardot. Brigitte Previous Bardot. Um, you know, Ingrid Bergman. But one of the things that I think to us, I think looking back now feels very sad, but obviously I you know, it's hard to know exactly how he saw it, but in the 1970s, he underwent conversion therapy. This is so um, sad, yeah. And the, the therapy in, included shock therapy. It was very, very sort of physically demanding us as well as psychologically yeah. awful. So, But he does he does then marry. He marries a woman. She's, he's 41 by this point. She's 25. She's a, a model and photographer. They had two children together and seemingly lived quite a happy life. But the, the other sad coda to this oh, story wife. was about his wife. So his widow was a passenger on the American Airlines plane that went into the North Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11. Yeah. Um, and, and she was killed. So that's a yeah, it's, it's a wow. rather tragic conclusion. And, you know, obviously huge, both survived by world their children. Events. Yeah. Carr, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where Psycho sat in culture when it came out. What was the social political climate? Was the film responding to any of that or was it just Hitchcock working out some of his own little kinks and also trying to push some audience buttons? Well, I think I think all of that can can be true simultaneously. I mean, for sure, Norma Bates is quite a sort of Hitchcockian figure, the sort of you know, the kind of slightly fey, uh, nervous young man who's a bit sort of tro- sexually troubled by women. But I think, you know, it, it really does. You know, We think of the 1950s as a time about sort of containment, you know, containment culture is the sort of like this way that academics describe a lot of what's happening in, in the 50s, the, you know, this anxiety about out, you know, needing to return to the nuclear family, the home as being the sort of healthy heart of, of America, you know, the communists who don't believe in sort of, you know, God and the woman in the home, you know, but we do in America. And actually, you know, this film troubles a lot of those sort of things in a way that a lot of a lot of other cultural products were doing by this point. And you think that obviously then, you know, only a, a couple of years later really sort of explodes in the kind of counterculture of the 60s. But also it's, you know, it was exciting, you know, it was stimulating. It gave people an emotional and visceral response, you know, when you saw it in the cinema. And also, you know, this was a time when the only way you could repeat that experience was to go back to the cinema. You couldn't access it on TV. You couldn't play it on a VHS. You know, that was that was it. So, you know, so people you know, enjoyed going back. You enjoyed going with your friends and, you know, grabbing someone's arm and squealing again because it was, you know, it was exciting. 
it's not going to appeal to everybody, but the people who do want to see it are going to come back and come back and they're going to bring their friends. And, it, you know, and he, he, he really kind of is able to, to generate this a huge cultural buzz. Block himself writes two more novels. There's, I think, four five spin-off films you know that it gets weirdly remade by Gus Van Sant in the in the why does that happen because right? this baffled me at the time when when Gus Van Sant makes what's pretty much a scene by scene remake um and I still don't understand why he does it like I can understand why there might be a psycho 2 which comes out in the early 80s and it's got Anthony Perkins in what is to be gained by making a scene by scene remake of a film which is already by anyone's standards a stone cold classic I do not know. <laughs> I genuinely, Even I was puzzled. Dr. Cara Rodway cannot <laughs> no. explain this away. And I, like you, Tom, was puzzled at the time, and I've you know, been thinking about it again, you know, preparing for this episode, and I, I'm still just not sure, because I think, I mean, it's in colour, isn't it? That's, you it's know. just got Vince Vaughn in, which is a terrible bit of casting. Oh, God. Yeah, and it's just, it's just very, it's, like it's film very karaoke. peculiar. It is like film karaoke, <laughs> but, you know, to what end? I mean, yeah. I just, yeah, it's just deeply strange. Um, yeah, it didn't. It didn't really work, and then you know you've had you had a recent even a recent reboot about sort of ten years ago with the Bates Motel TV drama. So it sort of it it has maintained a cultural interest for sure, and it's then you know parodied. You know you mentioned at the beginning about you know the music is an absolute it shorthand. It scares you. It's like it's so it's like the reduction sauce of the entire film. That yeah. Whee! Like no, it, 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 it's it amazing. It brings it all to you just in those little squeaky strings. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, and my one of my final uh, inserts was that the music inspired George Martin to put the strings into Eleanor Rigby, the Beatles huh. hit. That makes absolute sense. So there you go. That's Same sort uh, of rhythm. Vroom, 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 vroom. And also dark, sad, lonely, unfulfilled, unmet needs. Exactly, exactly. So that it, you know, it, 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 there's a, there's enormous cultural echoes that kind of you know that, that carry on. And I think this is definitely one of the um, the, the the Billy Joel entries, which is unequivocally definitely meant to be there you know you you can't you can't look at the sort of you know not just film history but you know kind of broader American cultural history over that period and not think of Psycho. Kara, it's always a pleasure to have you in the Fire Studio. And once again, I think both Katie and I are blown away by the breadth and depth of your knowledge on so many topics that Billy chooses to include in his song. Well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, and so yeah, fun. I hope, I hope uh, you know, everyone goes out and has another watch and is squealing and terrified as, uh, <laughs> as the Bates mother turns up with her knife. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. So, Katie, when you were watching Psycho, (laughs) for the very first time, did you scream? I felt tense. My sphincter muscles throughout my body. (laughs) There are many sphincter muscles throughout the human frame. Um, And they all. What are the other ones? What do you mean, the other ones? Which one are you thinking of? The bottom one. There's a front bottom one. Okay. Oh, right. And there's like the, the various ones within, you know, 
stopping the flow of goo into your stomach. Ooh. Yeah, there's all. It's all like it's like little hair scrunchies. <laughs> but, Learn so much on this show. But for your hindquarters and various things. Anyway, all of those were, were tight and tense. I got quite a workout. My kegels are are in <laughs> fine fettle, uh, thanks to Psycho and Kara. Uh, my goodness, she squeezes every morsel of juice from a topic. And I know so much more than I ever thought was possible. And of course, Katie, it was Kara who came up with possibly our favourite quote of the entire podcast run so far, which was... Damp Cloth Utopia. Yes. Was so the, the Dacron episode. The Dacron episode. A yeah. slogan we enjoyed so much, Katie, we put it on a tea towel. I know, we're insatiable. And to celebrate Kara being back once again in the show... Yes. We're going to do a cheeky little sale across our entire merch range. So we're talking tea towels, T-shirts, bookmarks, signed prints. If you would like 20% off some mm. We Can Start the Fire merchandise, simply head to spreadthatfire.com and use the code FIRE20. I know you know this, but that is F-I-R-E and then the number 20. All caps. This sale will only be going on for seven days, so until Monday the 29th. Make sure you grab your merch while you can at this low, low price. (laughs) (laughs) And if you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears, let us remind you about Death of a Film Star. This is immersive narrative storytelling, all about Hollywood's biggest names against an incredible soundscape. There are episodes about Errol Flynn, Judy Garland, Rock Hudson, plus our very own Velvet Essex. Tom (laughs) Fordyce may have written some of them. Listen to them all and try to figure out which ones he did. Yeah, if you would like to give them a listen, just search for Death of a Film Star, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you want more fire, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and we're at Spread That Fire. And next week, (gasps) where are we? Because we're somewhere, Tom. Where are we? Let's take ourselves back, Katie, to the end of March this year, where we went to a delightful podcast festival in the town of Ostend on the Belgian coast to record a special episode on... Belgians in the Congo. Belgians in the Congo. Belgians in the Congo. I apologize for that, that like, squall there. It was like a little squawking. Uh, Yeah, very dark episode, but my goodness, what... A beautiful little seaside sojourn that was. I've never seen such a vast beach on the stormy North Sea. Yes, absolutely. And of course, Katie, for the very first time ever, we had a live audience for our pod recording. I was a little thrown by that. I was slightly, I was slightly thrown because I'm so used to the intimacy of us in our tiny little <laughs> studio. This is like a, I don't know, it's like a, when you're growing bonsai trees and they need to be <laughs> sort of clipped back and constrained, and then suddenly I had to take my whole gig and and let it blossom and flower to an entire room. Lovely audience, totally supportive, great guests as well. So that is Belgians in the Congo next week. We'll see you then. Bye. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.